Well, once again, Muslim terrorists a terrorist have slaughtered attack. innocent Islamic people extremists and now Islamic control terrorists. parts of the country. The Their brand of justice is brutal and deadly. Newsflash, America. These Muslim extremists are, uh, are alive and well. They are not dead. And their video is not gratuitous. And it certainly is not irrelevant. It is a warning. Welcome to the Truth About Muslims podcast, the official podcast of the Zwemer Center for Muslim Studies, where we help to educate you beyond the media. Here are your hosts, Howard and Trevor. All right, here we are, episode number two, the Truth About Muslims podcast, with our sponsors this week, Columbia International University. As always, CIU educates people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Check them out at www.ciu.edu. I'm pretty sure you don't have to say the www part, just, just ciu.edu. Is that part of the recording? <laughs> oh, sorry. I just haven't heard WWW. I, 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 I bet you're like, okay. No, let's go with it. Let's go with it. And, the, and, the, and our other, our other, our other sponsor is the Zwemer Center for Muslim Studies at CIU. The Zwemer Center has been equipping the church to reach Muslims and training the church to understand Islam since 1979. Uh, just something to say about CIU too, is that uh, I graduated there from there, and uh, I really love that school. And I don't know, this is just a sponsor of ours, and I could just say whatever you know they tell me to say. But you know, I just wanted to say that I I really do actually love CIU. So, and uh, I I also graduated from there, and I liked Did it you? so much <laughs> that I work there. So it, it, it's really kind of funny. This week we were we were looking at some opportunities to uh, take students overseas. And uh, I had to bust out the old school missionary skills of trying to figure out how much would it cost per day for us to take a team overseas. And I was reminded of a trip that you and I did together several years back. Wait, wait, where are you taking these kids? Well, we were actually talking about going to Central Asia. Cool. But where we went several years back, do you remember? Uh, several years? Several years. We're talking, this is 14 years ago. <laughs> That's more than several uh well yeah you and me we went to maldives that's right before we went to maldives though we were in uh, london in the uk for right. a month and i think we had set our budget at about 10 10 dollars a day <laughs> well i think originally it was like 20 a day and then we spent like 19 of it a day in the uk right it killed our budget we got so expensive Ma we got to the maldives assuming since the maldives was in south asia it was probably one of the cheapest countries to live in and so that's we figured lie. we'd be fine on about five bucks a day yeah, that was a lie and we had loaf of bread and Nutella pretty much for breakfast all day, every day. And the guys, we were lucky because we could go into tea shops. The ladies weren't allowed in those tea shops. Remember the, the short eats? The tea shops the, basically were Basically appetizers. They're, they're delightful appetizers any time of the day. Right. And uh, you would just get a cup of black tea, which is really sweet. Did they, did they sweeten it or did we sweeten it? No, they would sweeten it. It right. tastes like hot sweet tea. Right, but it was so sweet. It was so sweet. Like Bojangles <laughs> would have competition. I don't know why hot sweet tea tasted so good on a hot, humid island. Right, and it was uh, there was no milk. It was just, you know, black. I mean, it was black tea. I mean, but but anyway, what I was thinking about and I was telling somebody at work was, uh, we we showed up in this this island nation and uh, we had very little money to our name. By the time we had secured a guest house, we had almost nothing left for dinner. And then we realized to go anywhere, we needed a taxi because it was just way too hot to walk anywhere. And we had no money. We had no food. <laughs> and 
Howard had this excellent idea about halfway through our two month stay. He wanted to rent a boat. No, 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 no. No, no, we didn't rent the boat. One of our friends, you know, we had we had made uh, friends with one of the the islanders, and uh, his dad offered to rent us a boat. You remember? Well, I, I don't remember how it came about. I just know that I came home one evening, and Howard said, "Hey, guess what? We're going on a boat for the next two weeks." So we, it was a week. It wasn't two weeks. I, I think a, it was more like two weeks. But we'll, <laughs> we'll settle on ten days. It was short for us, but for you, it felt like an eternity. I'm sure. So I couldn't go on the boat because earlier in that week, I had uh, broke my ankle playing soccer. Uh, okay, let's let's be honest here. You could go if you wanted to. Yeah, H- Howard was my. Uh, he was my team leader, and he just said, hey, we're going on a boat. And I kind of looked at him, and I thought, I got a cast on my leg. What am I going to do on a boat for a week? And he's like, watch us swim. <laughs> it is uh, the Indian Ocean. We're going to go Gorgeous. island hopping. We're going to go visit all these villages. We're going to have an awesome time. And I'm thinking, I'm going to be sitting there in a cast. I can't go on a boat. Right. And so, what was the solution then? Do you, do you guys hear my dog barking? <laughs> It's usually the mailman, but it's not today. Um, the solution was that you stayed back. You decided to stay back, and I and I gave you an allowance uh, per day, and uh, and you had a great time. Tell well, us about what. So we had we, we we had all these bags, and we couldn't fit them on the boat. It's a relatively small boat, and so we did. We we kept one guest house room, and we filled it with all of the bags, and myself and my crutches. And Howard gave me, if I remember correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, Howard, maybe in my mind it's exaggerated, but Howard gave me $3 a day to survive on. Liar. Okay, I don't remember. <laughs> it could have been. It could have very well been. 14 years ago, uh, it, it might not be in my head still, so I don't remember if it was $3, but however... So it, that, that it, means I, I the, sincerely believe that it was adequate, adequate enough to survive. And it, and it would have been considering that I could have gone to the tea shop and eaten for a dollar, mm. $3 a day in Howard's mind. That's one meal a day. He should be fine, except for the fact that I had a cast and I had to walk with crutches and I had to take a taxi anywhere I wanted to go. So to get to the tea shop cost me a dollar to get home from the tea shop cost me a dollar. So I'm down to one meal a day. You're lucky that island was like a mile wide. <laughs> so Crutches. Just, I'm on crutches. Right, right. But the taxis couldn't have been that expensive. <laughs> so so it really it really created a, a, an interesting opportunity for me. So I would be able to call these uh, this network of young Muslim guys that I had met over the last uh, month. Trevor's a surfer, if you didn't know, but uh, he would just sit there and surf pretty much all day whenever. The, well, actually, the break was always, uh, 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 the waves were always awesome. It was really good surf. And so I would call these guys and they would show up and they kind of developed a little bit of a schedule. Like one guy would show up in the morning to bring me breakfast. Another guy would show up in the afternoon and give me a ride to the surf break. Somebody would come in the afternoon and give me a ride back to my place. And then somebody would give me dinner. And then they got, they were so concerned about my well-being that at one point a guy just volunteered to stay with me. And he's like, I'm just going to stay for the next week. Yeah, as we, Howard says, I say two weeks. We we nicknamed him Smiley because he was always smiling, and he had dreads too. He looked like a he looked like a Maldivian Bob Marley. Yeah, awesome guy, and yeah. he 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 basically just shows up on the like second night, and he's got his backpack and his clothes and some food that his mom gave him to give to me, and he's <laughs> like, I'm moving in. I said, All right, so we're sitting there. It's the first night, and uh, it's a it's a small room, double bed. I'm laying on one side of the bed. He's laying on the other side of the bed, and and I said, uh, hey, Shawnee, do you, do you pray? 
And he says, yeah, I pray. And, and, I said, and he's a Muslim, right? He's a Muslim kid. I, I said, uh, I pray too. Can I pray for you? He said, okay, you pray for me and I'll pray for you. And I was like, right now? And he's like, yes, let's pray together. You pray and I'll pray. <laughs> so I'm sitting there and I start praying and I'm like, God, I just thank you so much for my friend, Johnny. I pray God that, and all of a sudden I hear him praying and he's praying a little bit louder than me. So I kind of pick up the, the volume a little bit and pray a little bit louder. And then he prays a little bit louder. And then by the end of like 30 seconds, we're shouting in the room, praying, trying to figure out. I felt like it was one of those moments with like prophets of Baal, like he's screaming to, to God, I'm screaming to God. And we're both praying that God would bless the other person. And it was just one of those really funny experiences that, it, that I was had a, with a Muslim. It's a bless off. It, it was a bless off. So who, who won? <laughs> I'm not really sure. I was a little bit concerned like secret police would come breaking down the door and arrest one of us. Wait, so so do Muslims generally pray like that? Okay, so when we think about Islam, we often think that they only pray in one way, and it's the way we see on the news yeah. where they get down on their Five knees and then they prostrate and they put their yeah. head on the ground. Facing and, uh, Mecca. Right, and yeah. that's the typical rakah, the style, the ritualistic prayer that we see. But there's other types of prayer in Islam. There's actually a couple different types. One... And that was the one that, that he was doing that night. Was It's called Dua, and it's a basically petition to God. It's the way that most Christians pray. And when I say most Christians, I mean we have ritualistic prayer too, right? Right. High church. High church. Anglican. Lord's Lutheran, prayer, liturgies. Episcopal. There you go. But we also have personal prayer. We sit around at the dinner table. We have prayers. We have prayers some with our children at night. Um, right. Before they go to bed. There you go. So St- we still understand. ritualistic, but... But a little bit more personal. Yeah. And then there's personal prayer. Um, Muslims have that. And then they also have something called dhikr, which is uh, more of a... Say liturg- that again? Dhikr. Dhikr? Yep. Okay. And it's a uh, more of a liturgical type prayer. Um, and a lot of times you'll see them carrying beads, prayer beads. Okay. So I thought about it and I asked somebody the other day, would it be odd if I carried around some beads around the campus? And this is a conservative Christian college. And so <laughs> I said, no, they're not, they're not Catholic beads and they're, they're not, um, Muslim beads. I was thinking or we Buddhist. could actually, yeah, Buddhist beads. And so they just, beads wouldn't be a good idea. But anyway, the thought was the 99 names of God, that's a, a form of, of dhikr where they will literally rotate the 33 beads in their fingers three times. And each time they recite a name of God. Is, is that considered a prayer, though? Absolutely. Yeah, it's remembrance. Huh. And I mean, when you think about Islam, one of the doctrines that's important to, to keep in mind is the doctrine of taqwa. It's called God consciousness, and it's to be in remembrance of God. Is there anything like that in Christian terms? Well, I think so. I mean, we should be constantly remembering God and doing what we can. As a matter of fact, I have a student that has uh, tattoos uh-huh. on his wrist of uh, crosses. Okay. And so he came to the house one day, and uh, my daughter, who's kind of sassy. Um, she's, <laughs> se- her. she's seven and she looked at him and she said, why do you have, uh, you have crosses on your wrist? And, uh, he said, so I can remember Jesus. And she looked him right in the eye and she said, are you afraid you're going to forget about him? <laughs> so in that yes. sense, in that sense, he kind of took a step back and was like, well, no. <laughs> then he had to reconsider why he had crosses on his wrist. <laughs> right. Nothing like a seven-year-old girl that changed the way you've done everything in the past. But we do have some concepts of remembering God and doing what we can to remember God. Some uh, more liturgical practices would be, uh, Luther, for instance, would say on a daily basis, we should recite the, I believe it was the Apostles' Creed, make the sign of the cross. Mm-hmm. Um, those were just rituals, daily rituals that he had for remembering, remembering God. Of course, communion. Communion. Right. Yeah, definitely. Uh, 
other things that we do, uh, joining together in prayer, maybe even some of the ways in which people uh, dress. They might take on a certain discipline that looks a certain way that would cause them to remember God daily. I mean, I don't know, fasting. There's tons of things that we do in Christian disciplines throughout history that are about remembrance, and right. uh, Muslims have those too. Cool. All right, so this week's podcast is on angry people. Let's talk about the media. So what's been going on in the media that's uh, kind of... Well, it's not hard to find angry people. I'm, I'm not really sure. Um, you know, they make medicine for that these days, but there's a lot of angry people out there. Right, right. So this week in the media, we were uh, just kind of watching and seeing what was happening. And uh, actually, it was the uh, it's Bill Maher's show that kind of caught our attention this week. The uh, Real Clear Politics um, video where there was a Bill Maher uh, interaction between Sam Harris and Ben Affleck that was very interesting. Right. And uh, it seemed like it was uh, uh, Sam Harris and Bill Maher on one side and Ben Affleck and Nicholas Kristoff. Nicholas Kristoff. Who's a Pulitzer Prize winning writer. I didn't know that, but uh, yeah, he's a... He's... Yeah, he runs an op-ed piece for the New York Times. He's right. often writing about Islam, uh, Christianity, and uh, I usually appreciate the things that he brings to the table. He's a, he's a, a sharp, sharp guy, and uh, this interview that goes on is really... It, it, it encompasses the whole show because we have the boom goes the dynamite session <laughs> yeah, section. Definitely. It's it's in here. There is a couple opportunities here where there's uh, someone drops the bombshell on Muslims and Ben Affleck the whole time is just you can see he's stirring. Uh, he with is frustration. angry. Yeah, he almost chewed his finger off. He was so frustrated. Right. And uh, I, I can understand why. Yeah. And so this is basically the rundown. Um Harris and Marr seem to be coming, uh, actually, just to, to bring this whole thing, introduce this whole topic. He's basically saying that liberals have really dropped the ball um, on the topic of theocracy, right? So um, they're willing to fight for uh, the feminist movement in the U.S., the, the gay rights movement, um, minorities, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, but when it comes to Islam... He's saying that the liberals aren't facing up to the real issues, which are the things that they're they're seeing these atrocities like ISIS beheadings, um, killing um, Muslims that convert, uh, uh, so on and so forth. So he's saying that because they're minorities, liberals are afraid to touch them. Yeah, it was interesting. He was actually <laughs> saying in some sense that he really wants them to take more of the approach of criticizing the ideas of Islam, but they're too afraid because... Uh, they are a minority in this country and that they shouldn't criticize uh, minority views. And his idea was that we really should be more critical of Islam. And, and Bill Maher of, Maher, of course, was on his side that we should be more critical. And Ben, ben Affleck kind of snaps a little bit. And <laughs> Not a little. Well, let's look at some of the things that were said specifically. Yeah, so so uh, the what Maher was coming at it was, and listen, I don't think he meant this, but what he kind of came across as let's bunch all of Islam together and say that these are the, you know, the, they're all bad. They're bad ideas. Harris, it was interesting is that he was saying at the basic, the core of Islam was actually, um, violence. So that if you are a, a true Muslim, if you were true, true Muslim, then you would by nature, uh, be violent. Yeah. And he, he didn't actually say it 
um, specifically, but the way he presented his argument was he talked about concentric circles. So let's say at the center of the circle, you have the radicals and maybe that's a smaller circle. Right. And then at the next layer, you have maybe not people that are radical and willing to fight and kill in the name of Islam, but you have people that are wanting to kill those that, uh, maybe leave Islam. And then at the next circle, you have the, um, people that just want to live a peaceful life and what he would call nominal Muslims. And, but by making those concentric circles, what he's basically arguing for is at the core, at the center of the belief system are the radicals. Right. And then it works its way out. And by the time you get to a peaceful, moderate, what I would say is a, the majority Muslim world, what he's saying is, well, they don't really hold their faith, um, in such a way that they would act based on their doctrines and beliefs. And that's the, that's where I take issue. Right. He's, he's basically saying that they're not serious about their faith. Exactly. Uh, actually, think- here's, the, here's the quote. Let me, give you, let me just give you what you want. This is Harris speaking. There are hundreds of millions of Muslims who are nominal Muslims who don't take the faith seriously. There you go. Who don't want to kill apostates, who are horrified by ISIS, and we need to defend these people, prop them up, and let them reform their faith. So it sounds like what he's saying is that in order for ref- reformation to happen in their faith is that these Muslims, these nominal Muslims, has to, have to basically propagate a, a less serious faith about Islam. It's really ironic. I mean, to say that the reformation of Islam is going to come through people that don't take the faith serious seems like an oxymoron to say that we we need a bunch of people that don't take the faith serious in order to be the ones to reform it. Right. So tell me, uh, I mean, you obviously know way more than than I do, but um, is the core of Islam violent? No, I don't, I don't think that there is a true core of Islam. I think that you have to look at it as a spectrum. And on one end of the spectrum, you have 15 to 20% of your Muslim world that is more of a radical leaning. And that's a large number. It's not to be minimized. But on the other end of the spectrum, you have another 15 to 20% that are the reformers. And I would say that the reformers are not the nominal Muslims. They are the ones that are looking at the text, challenging some of the older ways of viewing the text, challenging some of the commentaries, challenging some of the rulings of the different schools of law and saying that we need a reform. And then in the middle, right, you have that 60 to 60 to 70% that is going to be your moderate Muslim majority. And both of those two groups, the 15 to 20% on either side of that spectrum, are fighting for that moderate majority. To get them off the fence. Yeah, they want them on their side. Right. And so... Where is where would where, where would Sam Harris? Because early on in the interview, he says that he's very well educated, or maybe he just says well educated um, on Islam. Well, that was the thing. That, <laughs> um, ben Affleck challenges him and says, "So, are you? You know, do you know? Are you the one who can speak for all of Islam, the 1.6 billion people in the world who gives the the codified, uh, you know?" doctrines of Islam and Sam Harris's response is, well, I am well educated on this. And I thought, well, there's a little bit of an appeal to authority there just to say that he's well educated on this. He is certainly uh, a brilliant man. I'm not questioning his intellect, but to say that he's well educated on Islam might be a bit of a, a, a bit of a stretch. And, so, and he didn't answer the question. No, the no, question, the answer is no. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, he is not. He's not. I mean, he isn't. And for, for instance, we had a, a 120 Islamic scholars who are who are the uh, the codified uh, representatives of the Muslim world? Right. Those 120 scholars recently published an open letter to ISIS telling them how what they were doing was un-Islamic. And so I find it strange that Sam Harris would argue that the radicals have it right when he's looking at the um, Islamic scholars, those who do speak for Islam, meaning the uh, consensus of the Islamic scholars, 
in saying that they don't have it right, the radicals have it right. That seems very bizarre to me, but I do think he has an agenda, and his agenda is based on his uh, kind of underlying presupposition that religion in and of itself is, is, is a bad thing. Right. You might know Sam Harris from his book, A Letter to a Christian Nation, which basically just rips down Christianity. But his arguments, uh, I've always found, were weak, strawman type arguments um, that aren't robust at all. So I don't know. I, I just kind of felt like when he kind of came in in this Bill Maher talk show that he was going to come from a slant of anti-religion uh, seeing all religion as unviable or inviable or unviable. Is it in or un? Unviable. Not viable. Not viable. There you go. <laughs> not viable. Not viable. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So what, where would he get this idea from? Back to that question. Where, where would he get this idea that, that Islam is violent by nature and that if you're a faithful follower of Allah, that you're going to be violent as well? Well, I think it comes back to that idea of how is he interpreting the the Quran. I mean, for instance, he brings up the law of apostasy, and he brings up some Pew research uh, work that's been done on the law of apostasy. Pew has done an excellent job surveying the Muslim world, asking them, do you agree with the law of apostasy? Do you agree with Sharia law? Do you think Sharia law should be in different countries? And what you'll see through the interviews is there are some countries that are certainly concerning, I think, depending on the type of Sharia they're talking about. Um, but there are other countries. One in particular that I was looking at was Indonesia, and it's by no means a majority consensus on the law of apostasy or Sharia, and that's mm. the largest Muslim country in the world. So to generalize that Islam in and of itself is going to produce a radical person if they take their faith seriously is ridiculous, in my opinion. Uh, would you, okay, this is just a shot in the dark, but would you say that, uh, or could you see any connection between um, the, the general populations of these nations that are more moderate when it comes to apostates or killing apostates um, in connection with their, their, their level of connection to the West, like Indonesia, there's certain areas of Indonesia that are very, very touristy, right? Do you think that those, those, that tourism mentality would bring into um, that culture, you know, ideas might not necessarily be there in general with other Muslim countries? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I don't know exactly what would be the influencing factors. I would say that the, um, the overarching theme that goes throughout the Muslim world is there isn't one. There isn't an overarching narrative that plays throughout the Muslim world, and that's why you have groups like ISIS coming and saying things like, we are the new Islamic State, and we are the new... Uh, representatives of the Muslim world, Abu Baghdadi, uh, Bakr Baghdadi saying that he is the new caliphate. And what he's saying is, I'm going to unify Islam under one sort of uh, interpretation of Sharia, uh, one sort of interpretation of Islamic, uh, you know, the Hadith and all of the different texts that you have in Islam. And that hasn't happened in a very long time. I mean, the Ottoman Empire is the last empire of the Muslim world that was uh, abolished in 1924. Mm -hmm. So, to say that there's an overarching narrative that goes across the Muslim world is to ignore world history that has been each Islamic empire has fallen usually at the hands of another Islamic empire. Right. So you, you, you're not seeing any kind of pattern. Uh, they're, they're just basically swinging from right to the left as far as uh, apostate and some of these other, uh, um, um, what, these other uh, aspects of Islam, different doctrines, or di do doctrines or, or yeah, no, there, there's certainly, uh, like I said, I think we've talked about it in our last podcast, the different schools of law and the individual really doesn't get a chance to say, um, what Islam should look like. It really comes down to the school of law and the government system of which Islam is in. 
And so the, it doesn't necessarily matter. I mean, I couldn't say that there's a pattern based on every um, Muslim country, depending on where they are geographically. All I can say is that the diversity within Islam is is vast. And anytime somebody starts to break that diversity down and get very reductionistic about what a Muslim is supposed to look like, I think that they're headed for uh, a problem. Right. And it seemed like Egypt, just looking at the polls, um, Egypt was far the extreme. Yes, most definitely. Egypt has got uh, a pretty extreme view. And, and there's a history there, too. When one of these podcasts will look specifically at the, uh, the role of Egypt in sort of the resurgence of fundamentalism and radicalism, looking at the Muslim Brotherhood. But there's a history there. It didn't just sort of crop up out of, out of nowhere. Um, just a little bit of a teaser. Ayman al-Zawahiri, the current leader of al-Qaeda, was imprisoned in Egypt um, back in, uh, I guess that would have been the 70s. Uh, so Egypt has a long history of dealing with radicalism, dealing with Sharia, dealing with trying to keep a uh, Muslim theocracy working. And uh, when you look at that history, it doesn't bode well for this sort of successful Islamic state. I mean, just really quick, let's think of some of the countries in the world that are trying to operate under these theocracies and see how they're doing. I mean, we have, what, Pakistan, uh, Egypt, um, Tunisia actually has completely rejected this idea and they're getting, becoming more and more secular. Um, you have other Muslim countries, um, you know, you have Morocco, um, the Berbers are becoming very antagonistic towards a, a Muslim government. Um, wow. So Muslim governments are, are failing all around the world and the people are becoming incredibly dissatisfied with Islam, especially when you, you talk about people that have left Islam, we're talking about apostasy. Those who have converted to, say, Christianity, for instance, when they were interviewed, the number uh, four reason that they gave for leaving Islam was a dissatisfaction with Islam, particularly related to seeing these Islamic theocracies rise up. Okay, so what is that from? What, what, what do these theocracies have in common that are causing so many to be dissatisfied? Well, I think a lot of it is, is violence. I mean, there's something inside of us that just doesn't feel very good about seeing uh, a fellow human being suffer. I do think that there is an innate belief in every human being that says something that, that we're created in the image of God and that we do not want to see other people suffer. And so when you see these Islamic governments coming in and they become oppressive towards their people, some of them, not all of them, but some of them are oppressive towards their people, people kind of look at that and they're the, their disillusion. They, they think this doesn't really seem like a utopian society. Interesting. So in some ways, Islamic theocracies are becoming their own worst enemies. Okay, so for this week's Boom Goes the Dynamite, uh, Sam Harris says in the same interview that we've been talking about, he says that Islam at the moment is the mother load of bad ideas. Yeah, that's a definite boom goes the dynamite to characterize an entire religion by saying that it is the mother load of bad ideas i'm not sure that that's that's such a good idea okay so let's let's talk about some of these uh these things that they would declare as bad ideas like the most common jihad let's talk about jihad so kind of explain in terms that uh that we would understand uh, that me being uneducated in Islam would understand what is it? What, what is this jihad thing and why are there radicals and, and why are there people killing in the name of jihad? What is exactly going on there? We're going to have to do a whole podcast just on jihad because it's that 
complex, but if you just want to hear sort of the, the two main streams of thought when it comes to jihad, uh, some Muslims would argue that there are two jihads. Okay. As I would actually, I would say most Muslims would argue that there are two streams of jihad. There is the greater jihad and there is the lesser jihad. The greater jihad is the internal struggle. Jihad means to struggle. Um, the greater jihad is the internal struggle that happens within the life of every Muslim. It's somewhat comparable to the idea of the struggle within a believer between the spirit and the flesh, right? To, okay. to maintain uh, a sense of God consciousness, to follow after the teachings of Allah, to follow after the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad. And there is that struggle to sort of be in the world, but not of the world, if okay. that makes sense. Yep. The lesser jihad, obviously the well more, more well-known jihad, is the holy war, the struggle to uh, fight against those who are fighting against Islam. And that's the one that really gets debated within the Muslim world as to what that looks like, what qualifies as jihad. And, to what uh, extreme they go? To what extreme? Should it be only a defensive jihad? Should it be an offensive jihad? Should you kill other Muslims? Should you even kill other Christians? Should you only kill those who are fighting? There's so many nuances to the idea of jihad for somebody to just put a blanket statement out there and say, hey, jihad is holy war. It's about fighting in the cause of Allah. And that's really all there is to it is way too simplistic. So is there precedent for that? For jihad? Uh-huh. Oh, most certainly. Um, there's I mean, for, for battle, for fighting, for war. Absolutely. For... I mean, when you look at the Quran, the, the Quran is... Uh, I've never said that the Quran is a book of peace or a book of violence. I don't know that you can really say that it's either. To just simply take a text and say, well, it has a lot of violence in it, therefore it must be a violent book, um, I think is, is not true. Or to say that, well, this is a very peaceful, has a lot of peaceful things in it, it must be a peaceful religion, isn't true either. And so I don't think the Quran is filled with violence or peace. It has both, just like the Bible has both. I mean, if we took the two side by side, we just ran a textual sort of analysis and said, which book is has more violence? Which, which one do you think Howard would come up as being the more violent text? The Bible. Of course, right? I mean... Right. I don't know how they come out with Bible movies that are rated anything less than R. There's some just straight <laughs> violence that goes on in the Bible. Right. Book of Judges. That's what comes to mind. <laughs> Book of Judges. That would be an NC-17. Right. Um, a lot it, of problems it, in there. A lot of problems. But we would not say that the religion of Christianity or Judaism is a violent or violent religions because the texts themselves have violence. Right. You because the I mean? Bible is mostly narrative. Right. It's Story. narrative. It's descriptive. It's not... Uh, well, there are some commands for... For violence, but we have ways of uh, interpreting our text, right? We do what we would call hermeneutics. We read the Bible in light of its context, and so right. we can read something in, say, Deuteronomy chapter 13, where there is a clear statement of apostasy, right? To kill those who would secretly entice you to follow other gods. Even if it be your son, daughter, or even the spouse that you love, we aren't doing that today, yeah. right? You're not killing people that are not wanting to follow or trying to secretly entice you to follow other gods, are you? Right. So how do we get by that? Well, we have hermeneutics. We interpret the text in light of its context, and then we take the entire text as a whole in order to determine what are the doctrines. And we also have a historical tradition in which we do that as well. Right. Muslims have the same thing. That makes sense. And so with jihad, with ISIS, that's why there will be so many Muslims that are outraged by what they're doing. Uh, I, I actually saw this uh, Instagram thing where people, uh, Muslims from other countries, were hashtagging everything, um, not in my name. Mm. And it was basically against uh, opposing what ISIS was doing and saying, this is not in the name of Islam or in the name of Allah or in the name of Muslims. Yeah, it's it's becoming harder and harder to um, 
to silence the other side. Um, for instance, after the attack on the American embassy in Benghazi, um, Chris Stevens was brutally murdered um, by uh, radical Muslims. Following that, there was a protest, a march in the streets with Muslims holding up signs that said Benghazi is against terrorism. Chris Stevens was a friend to all uh, Libyans. Right. Um, this is not the behavior of Islam or our prophet, but most people didn't see those signs. Right, because that's not what sells newspapers or magazines or... No, no. Gets it clicks doesn't. or visits to websites. Right, exactly. So, but how do you get one Muslim having such a radical view of jihad wanting to fight against the whole world to establish an Islamic empire. And how do you get another Muslim that says, uh, you know, I just want to live, live at peace. Actually Ben Affleck, let's, let's look at how he says it. What's his quote there uh, from well, Ben Affleck? Well, th this is our, this is our carpe diem award goes to Ben Affleck. Ben uh, Affleck gets the carpe diem. If, if anything, it's because of his creativeness and how he presents his case. Uh, he was very angry, but he was funny at the same time. So classic uh, Ben Affleck. Right. I, I don't know how he pulls that off, but it's a gift. So he says, how about more than a billion people who aren't fanatical, who don't punch women, who just want to go to school, have some sandwiches, pray five times a day, and don't do any of the things you're saying of all Muslims. It's stereotyping. I really like the sandwiches part, though. <laughs> just want to have some sandwiches. <laughs> Who doesn't want to just have sandwiches? They don't punch women. Right. They just want to go to school. They just want to have some sandwiches. And pray five times a day. Pray five times a day. And, and it's a great argument, because really what on this podcast we deal a lot with is stereotyping. Because I, you know, me personally, and I think this is maybe part of the, the reason why we have this podcast, is that we don't think uh, that anything in this world will change by just drawing up battle lines. I mean, it'll change, it just won't change for the better, right? And I, 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 was, um, I was reading some quotes, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he, in his sermons, he would always talk about how um, darkness cannot be dispelled by darkness, mm. and hate cannot be dispelled by hate. Only love can do that. And I think that's really, really powerful in this terms. Like it's not, it's not, we're, we're, I think as Christians, we're called far beyond that. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Far, far beyond the, the, the natural, the, the, the worldly response of, you know, like, you know, kill my enemies. Those well, can you imagine me. the Pharisees when Jesus comes and says, you've heard eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And they're right. like, oh yeah, we have, we practice it. And then I say that you should love your enemies. Right. Turn the other cheek. And we don't know how to do that as, as Americans. And, it's unnatural. As, and and it, what's sad is that it's really filtered into Christians. So because we're no longer we're no longer Christians, we're Christian Americans or we're American Christians. And so we see things totally different. So our our war is against Islam or Muslims or people of different faiths. Um, but we're, we forget the Great Commission. Right? Yeah. We, we forget uh, being salt and light to the world and and trying to reach out to people and uh yeah, uh, you know, I, I think that's a that's a, a tragedy. But th this isn't the first time that Christians have found themselves in this situation. I mean, think of St. Francis. Um, you know, he gets a, an interesting rap. Everybody thinks of St. Francis as being somebody that was um, <clears throat> just preaching to the animals and... Uh, <laughs> In the woods, right? I was thinking, have, I was thinking about Disney. We have Disney. a recorded sermon to a bird. Um, <laughs> or preach the gospel, always use words when necessary, which... Yeah. By the way, that we don't have any record of St. Francis actually saying that. We've got a lot of good rumors, but right. there's no qu people quoting that. Yeah. yeah, but there's no there's no uh you'll notice there's never a citation along with that because we don't know that he ever actually said it. And but what we do know about St. Francis is that when the crusades were going on, he was he made a direct appeal to the Pope to be able to go and share the gospel with the enemy, the Muslims. Wow. 
And so he wasn't interested in killing them. No. Yeah, he was, he was interested monk. in saving them, yeah. Yeah, and so he and his uh, monk buddies, they, they go out into the battlefield knowingly that they're going to be captured because there's uh, gold being offered for the heads of any Christian that's caught in this battle. They willingly allow themselves to be captured, and then they're presented to the Sultan of Camille. And Sultan Camille uh, asks them what they're doing, and St. Francis shares the gospel with him. And then St. Francis actually volunteers to walk through fire to prove the God of St. Francis to be the real one and true God. I mean, this is not the St. Francis uh, preach the gospel, always use words when necessary. It's preach the gospel, always be willing to walk through fire if necessary might be a good a good quote. <laughs> right. And that stands, I mean, that's, that stands in the face of what we as Christians in America do, I think, you know, and that, uh, I mean, look, look at Fox news and I'm not saying that Fox news represents Christianity, but a lot of people use that as a weapon, um, to bash people. Yeah. You know? No, like, that's not, that's not the, it's not supposed to be the behavior of, of Christians to be bashing and tearing down. It's to be one. If let's just think of it this way, Howard, one of the ways I like to think of it is if, if all Muslims really were um, radical, let's say that I'm wrong. Sam Harris and some others are right. All Muslims really at the core are radical. They're the enemies of Christianity. They're going to persecute. They're going to do all these wicked things. They're going to set up, uh, tyrannical governments that are going to rule with an iron fist and smash down Christianity. Let's say that's the case. What would be the proper Christian response? To love them. To love your enemy, right? Right. I mean, let's think of Romans 13.1, where Paul's dealing with the church in Rome, and he's talking about all authorities are in place by God, not to rebel against authority. Who is the authority of Rome at this time? I mean, this, if there was ever a governmental system that was out to smash and crush Christianity, it would have been the governmental system that was in place when Paul wrote Romans. Right, Nero and And he says to submit. Same thing with Peter. Do not be surprised when this fiery trial comes upon you. I mean, this is the the mantra of the early church is persecution is coming. We're told it's going to come, and we're not supposed to rise up and rebel and fight against it. We're supposed to preach the gospel in spite of the fact that we're being persecuted. Right, and I think Matthew, the book of Matthew, is a great... Uh, illustration that we constantly talk about the kingdom of heaven and how different it is from our kingdoms, you know, here on earth. And that harkens back to judges, which is funny because we were talking about judges earlier and it was like, uh, you know, we want to be a nation. We want to be, we want to have a a king. We want to be a king. We want to have a king king like like the other nations. Yeah. Like everyone else. (laughs) And, and look where that, that led them ultimately. I mean, to the absolute destruction, you know, and I don't know. So, here we are with uh, our carpe diem of the week is uh, Ben Affleck, and and you know I don't I don't necessarily just you know be fair I don't really necessarily agree with his um, his sandwich approach. <laughs> no, the humor was good, but I don't think that he was coming across as as humorous. He was very very bitter, sarcastic. <laughs> it was coming angry. from a, it was coming from an angry place, but I, I kind of understand why he was so frustrated. Our last segment that we're going to be talking about is resource resource of the week, which is. Phil Parshall's book, uh, Muslim Evangelism, Contemporary Approaches to Contextualization, put out by InterVarsity Press. Uh, Trevor, you want to say anything about that book? Yeah, it's, it's a, again, anything that Phil Parshall has written is, is excellent. I think he's probably got about eight or nine different books um, that I can think of offhand. Um, they're all excellent, but really for me, the sweet spot is Phil Parshall's writings on contextualization. When Phil Parshall was doing contextualization uh, back in the day, it was almost as though he was on the fringe. But now, Phil Parshall is considered... Wait, wait, wait. 
on the fringe. On the fringe, meaning too much contextualization. Right. Because he was looking to build bridges. I think his original text that he wrote was building bridges uh, to Islam, if I'm not mistaken. So like Hudson Taylor kind of extreme, like beards and, you know, like garb and... Oh, yeah. Beards, garb. Uh, going to the mosque. Nature of God. Kind of thing. Well, not not worshiping within the mosque, but certainly uh, speaking with people in the mosque and, and presenting themselves as religious men by their, their dress and by their look and then dealing with where they're at and what they believe about God. I mean, he just did an excellent job on uh, taking people where they were and uh, being able to translate the gospel into terms and uh, actions that they would understand. So today we wouldn't see those as extreme. No, not at all. Today right. we would actually see him as being the one who's keeping people from becoming extreme. But it's kind of funny, you know, historically it was almost like he was an extremist in the beginning and now he's the man of reason. And so maybe it's because he has white hair now and people are just not so concerned about his approach. I think his approach is fantastic. And I've been so encouraged by just about everything he's written. And uh, I think he's an excellent, excellent contributions to uh, reaching the Muslim world. Right. So... Back to the fringe. I'm really interested in this. So, like, what would you say is on the fringe now? Who, what, what, what? Oh, not, not, that's a whole nother podcast. Not, not, naming, not naming names, but like, what kind of I've things? I've got a list. <laughs> what kind of things do people do that make them on the fringe of Muslim contextualization now? Like, be being Muslims. Like, I've I've heard that. All right, let's where, uh, just a teaser. Just really just a quick, quick just teaser. Really quick. Maybe we can things, talk about this next week. I don't sure. know. But, Some but, of the things that are putting people on the fringe is calling themselves Muslim, even though they're Christian. Even though they're Christian. And saying that the Quran specifically references the disciples of Jesus saying that they, that they were submitted to God and following Jesus and they were good Muslims. And so based on the fact that we as Christians are also submitted to God and following Jesus, we can say that we are Muslim according to the Quran too because we are submitted to God and we are following Jesus. But wow. that would be on the fringe in my opinion uh, just because... I'm not so sure that when you call yourself Muslim that the Muslim understands what you're trying to get across. Right. And so there would need to be some sort of qualifying statement. Like, I am a Muslim because I'm submitted to God and I'm following Jesus. Uh, I'm not sure that that would necessarily communicate what I would want them to know. I'm, right. I, would and, want, and, I would want to ask them, what do you mean uh, by calling me Christian before I would want to use that term? If they said, well, you're Christian, so this means A, B, and C. And if I don't agree with A, B, and C, I'm going to say, oh, I'm sorry, that's not who I am. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus, or I would want to redefine what it means to be Christian, but I wouldn't just take on a term that they would like that would get me in that later they might feel deceived with. Right. That's what I was going to say. The word deceive, deceived, deceitful. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed this week's podcast. Uh, stick with us till next week and uh, we'll be talking about more interesting things. Yeah, apparently we got to talk about contextualization and being on the fringe. Right, so we got to we'll, talk about a lot of new things. And so. I think we're going to do our best to get uh, Dr. Partial to get him in on an interview. He's uh, retired these days working in uh, Central Florida, but I think he'd still be up for doing a, maybe a phone interview or something like that. So we'll give him a call and see if we can get some some updates on where he's at and kind of his perspective on what's going on in the Muslim world. So look for that as well. Right. Like the show or hate the show. We want to hear your comments, post them below. We'll talk to you next week.